Welcome back to another episode of The Conversational. Today, I'm here with a friend, and for full disclosure, he's also um, actually doing work for us at Party City now, so I have roped him into doing this for me too, so thank you, Brad <laughs> Smith. So Brad Smith is the founder, president of Vector Business Navigation, Inc. He has had the privilege of leading many an organization in their customer-centric transformations, including companies like Symantec, Yahoo, and Sage. He was their CX architect, CCO, and CMO, just in case there were other Cs that were missing. Across his 20 plus years of leadership, Brad has led global support and service functions for Oracle, OpenWave, and VeriSign, as well as smart, small startups. As noted, he is the founder and president of Vector Business Navigation, Inc., but he's also president of the board of directors for the Consortium for Service Innovation, and through the work of the consortium has helped hundreds of customers, service organizations deliver deep value to their customers, as well as better engage their employees. He's also recognized innovator of the Customer Experience Professionals Association and also serves on the CXPA board of directors, class of 2020. He's got many, many awards, including, including a global CX practitioner coaching platform in 2015 to 2018, and is an alumni member of the Forrester Chief Customer Executive Council, Technical Service Industry Association, and Chief Customer Officer Councils. So he's, um, he's also well-written, published many very exclusive and important um, companies like Forbes, New York Times, Fox Business, Entrepreneur, uh, all of which have uh, spoken very highly of him, which is why I hired him. He's a frequent keynote speaker and a blogger across the CX and customer service, customer success communities. And he's actually helping us at Party City do our CX journey mapping too. So yes. as a CXO myself, I like <clears throat> other people with lots of CXs in their titles, so it's fun. Um, but outside of all the the acronyms and yeah, the experience right. stuff, right? So um, I have Brad asked him to join us because he's got a fascinating background. So being a customer experience people, you know, people how did, you know, my background also not engineer. <laughs> did it, right. it wasn't that a customer experience, <clears throat> you know, expert or chief experience officer didn't exist back when we were it's going to school. It's the best made up title ever. ever. Right, yeah. well I've been chief storyteller too, so there's a couple, couple of good ones yeah. out there that yeah. you can make up as you kind of run out of things to call yourself. Right. But, you know, I think most of us who are in this role and current started off with something totally different. Yeah. So we're, so just let's back up to early days of Brad Smith. Yes. Brad Smith. Where was Brad Smith one of, how, do you know how many Brad Smiths there are in this country? Uh, there's lots and there's a lot of famous <laughs> ones, uh, you know. Um, so there's uh, famous Brad Smiths at Intuit and Microsoft and other places. So when in Silicon Valley, I typically can get a table pretty easily. That's right. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. So where, where, where was this Brad Smith born? <clears throat> I was born in Columbus, Ohio, which apparently is the gateway for most of my best friends and family. A lot of people come from Ohio. Staying there seems to be a problem, but uh, but they're good. They're good people. And uh, I, I lived in Ohio uh, until the age of nine. Then I moved to uh, Merritt Island, Cocoa Beach, Florida, the Space Coast. Oh, right. And uh, that kind of ignited my imagination and my, my, my quest for adventure, mm -hmm. if you will. So how, how were, so was your, you, you had <clears throat> brothers, sisters, tell me about yeah, your parents. Yeah, so uh, four brothers, five sisters, uh, scattered mm -hmm. across uh, five-ish marriages on my dad's <laughs> side and three on, uh, or two on my mom's side. So 
You know, dysfunctionality wow. is how I grew up. I embraced it, and uh, it's been the key to my corporate success, I think, ever since. So ten. So there's 10 brothers? And Theoretically, so, there's 10, yes. And where, where did you fit? Um, I was the last uh, litter, so my mom and dad uh, <laughs> were, were married last, and uh, me and my little sister came from that. Uh, so my dad got married, had three kids, got married again, had two, adopted two, then married my mom. My mom got married, had a, had a son, then married my dad. So, Five marriages. <clears throat> now, yeah. were, these, were, the, were these divorces? Yeah, divorces, okay. and, and my dad would collect the kids. It was a very strange situation back in the, in the 60s. But, um, oh, wow. So about every 10 years, uh, there was a family and there was kids. And uh, so I grew up in a, in a highly dynamic and diverse uh, environment that I didn't know any better, right? So, and you were, but you were, and so were all, if there were 10 of you in total, were they all in the house at the same there was, time? Th my, my dad's uh, first three kids uh, were already out on their own before I came to be. Uh, his adopted two and uh, birth two came to live with my mom. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my mom had her son. And uh, then suddenly I was born and uh, two and a half years later, my sister was born. So at one point we had seven kids in a, a three bedroom, two bath house oh in Willoughby, gosh. Ohio, uh, living double bunk beds, you know, living the dream. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and fighting over like the, the dinner table must have been an experience. Well, no, and my dad was a traveling salesman. So ah. it was my mom on watch. And then, you know, we'd wait for my dad to come home on Friday to distribute justice. And then, you know, we, we would go off and, and do our penance and do our chores. There was the, I had a traditional household like that too. Absolutely. It was like dad was the threat and it was, please mom, don't. Dad, dad was the threat. Yeah. yeah. And so pretty much as soon as anyone of my older brothers and sisters graduated high school, they were immediately out and on their own. <laughs> both uh, by design and by uh, their preference. And uh, so, you know, growing up in the late 60s in Ohio, I had a brother who was a Marine Corps combat photographer uh, on his second tour of duty in Vietnam. I had another brother who dropped out of high school and was a draft dodger. Um, I had another brother who signed up to join the Marine Corps before he was 18, and my dad signed him and you know let him go. I had a sister who joined Up With People, the singing group in the back 60s. Oh my God. Uh, it was, it's, you know, I feel like Forrest Gump Up sometimes when I really think about it. I bet you do. It. Yeah, I know. It's nuts. But they all came back from Vietnam? Yeah, you know, everybody came home. Everybody's that's a, good. Yeah. That's amazing. Actually, yeah. that's right. Everybody's good. And I have the deepest love and appreciation for military because of that. My dad was a World War II Air Force pilot. He was born in 1919. That's crazy. So my dad had me in his, um, you know, mid to late 40s, which was really not common no common in the in the early 60s yeah but 1919 yeah. so he was so he was in the service you've got yeah at least half of your brethren yeah. were in the service yeah. Yeah. did you ever have an interest yeah no i was uh, i wanted to be air force pilot absolutely i was I, I saw neil armstrong step on the moon i remember looking upside down through my legs when the camera pivoted and i was like that's something i'd like to be my dad moves to Merritt island florida where they launched the Apollo yeah. missions and, and space shuttles. And uh, so I pretty much committed my life to the age of 10 to become an astronaut and Air Force pilot. I thought that would be the greatest thing I could possibly do. Did you ever get to meet any of the astronauts? Yeah, lots of them. Um, uh, my dad uh, stayed at uh, Holiday Inn Cocoa Beach <laughs> in the year of 1972 from December to November when we moved down to join him. And that's where all the Apollo astronauts hung out. So. Uh, through my dad's connections, I met Alan Shepard, Neil Armstrong, Wally Sherrard. I met Gene Cernan. 
uh, Bob wow. Crippen, who was the first pilot for the space shuttle, uh, uh, Overmeyer, a lot of a lot of great astronauts. And then ultimately, my life led to a place where I got a job at Kennedy Space Center in 1988. Was that that was your dream? So sort of being well, an astronaut. Well, I wanted to be flying, not working there. But you know, I had a I had a bit of a uh, come to find out after committing my year, you know, my my collegiate early years to the pursuit of an aeronautical degree and ultimately becoming an Air Force pilot. Come to find out, I had a colorblind issue, which uh, how did you not know you were colorblind until that late? You know, you know, I I blame it on my mom, um, basically. (laughs) Um, She's like, "What color is this on?" You're like, "Color green." It's all this color naivety. I thought it was, you know, I thought beige versus, you know, melon doesn't matter. (laughs) Apparently, it does. Um, uh, Yeah, so um, I had to retool. Um, so I, uh, but that must have been devastating. I mean, we talked yeah, about these no. holy shit moments, right? You go in, you've got yeah. this passion and sort of this military no, no, air. So, and... No, seriously, from 22, from 10 to 22, everything was focused on that being the thing. Yeah. And, um, suddenly I find myself with 80 plus hours of college credits that apply to Emory Riddle Aeronautical University. At this time, I'm working as the general manager of Maryland Airport, uh, which is a flight school. I, I'm talking to the dean of admissions. I said, show me um, postgraduates. Show me the kind of jobs these graduates would get, because I'm going to have to take out a massive loan to finish my degree. I look at this list of recent graduates. I've employed seven of them as flight trainers at my airport. So I'm like, I don't know that I want to do this. So I decided not to pursue aeronautical engineering. And I had two brothers that were mechanics, and I knew I didn't really want to be a mechanic. So at that time, in, you know, 1983, computers were the thing. So I plowed myself into computers and got a computer uh, AS degree in computer programming and ultimately finished my bachelor's into management information systems. So once I pivoted and I dedicated myself to computers and the pursuit of using computers to drive better business decisions, one of my best friends uh, had a job opening at the Space Center, and at this time I, I was now newly married. I had a mortgage. I had a new and wife. And how old were you? Uh, 22. 20, okay. As everyone so should, should, yeah, you should always move out of your mom's house to your married house. <laughs> yeah. Great advice. Um, and, no dog uh, first or anything, yeah. just right to it. And, okay. and after deciding I would never work at the Space Center, I decided Space Center's greatest job ever. And so in 88, this is after Challenger, and this is the rebuild to, to get back to flight. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I, I had a great hookup. I had the opportunity to work at three different groups. I ended up in the engineering support area. Uh, Lowell Debevic, the hiring manager, said um, his first job for this interview to, to run engineering data reports was, have you ever worked in the food service industry? What? And luckily, I'd, I'd worked at the, at the mall pizza joint for <laughs> two and a half years. So I got to tell him that story. He says, okay, good. If you understand service, then I can use you. Ah. If you don't get service, I don't have time for you. Hmm. And that was a forerunner to the rest of my career. So from the minute the shuttle would land until it takes off again, it goes through uh, 27 pre-staged sequence tests. And engineers would run diagnostics and verify that the orbiter's ready for launch. And I'd run all the engineering reports to show that it qualified. And if anything, anomalous happened that I'd run troubleshooting engineering. So in my mid-20s, I cut my teeth on an obsession about data and fact and proving and science. And that's, you know, 
So I finished my degree. But wait, wait, wait. Think, <clears throat> wait, wait. So at 25 years old, yeah. you don't have an engineering degree. No. And yes, and thank God there's engineers, but you're the one who's got to look at the reports. All the data, data not looking for anomalies, and Absol so it's up yeah. to you to just. So, no, so the engineer says this doesn't look right. Explain to me why this happened. So I'd run through a battery of different reports to look for the anomalies and the signatures to show this is where it happened, this is why it happened, and we'd solve this murder mystery together. Wow. So 27 tests for every shuttle flight, and we're flying eight to 10 shuttles a year. And this is my entire job. But that's a lot of pressure for a 20-something year old. You're sending people up But it's space. more exciting than that because Lockheed Martin paid for my bachelor's degree. Oh. So I decided to go full throttle. I took 16 hours a semester. I worked second shift odd work week at the Space Center. And I decided, you know, we should have a son. So <laughs> I would wake up, change Noah's diaper, feed him, drive to Orlando, go to University of Central Florida, stay all day there, drive straight to the Space Center for my 4 p.m. shift start, get out of work at midnight, and then come home and take care of Noah, and then wash and repeat. And I did that for two and a half years just to get through my degree. Wow. The drive was because my dad sacrificed a good many things to give me the best life possible, and I felt obliged to do mm -hmm. this. Growing up as a Boy Scout, I felt equally obliged to get the merit badges to earn yeah. that right. And I knew that this short-term sacrifice to, to life, life experience, my 20s, my marriage, and everything else would be worth it in the long run. And, you know, it paid off. So following my degree, I became a software quality engineer for the GLS launch sequencer, ground launch sequencer, which is the math model that runs the shuttle countdown from T minus 45 minutes through liftoff. Any change in that, I would sign off on the quality of it. I'd verify and run tests against it. And after doing that for like a year, I got bored and I said, yeah, I could write this code. So then I, I joined the GLS group, became a GLS programmer and uh, wrote shuttle launch code for two and a half years. Oh my God. But even that was, it got Monotonous, tedious. Right? Well, the thing of it is, is that this code was originally written in 1977. So this tapestry of code has launched every shuttle and when a new shuttle is put to the launch pad, it's got a different payload. It's got a different launch apogee. It's got different you know, weights, volumes, et cetera. So it's a different vehicle. So what we had to do is go into this tapestry of code, find the specific lines to change and uh -huh. modify so that it would fly true without causing any deadly harm. Right. No, right. Nope. So no, not a lot of creativity stress. arc yeah. and a lot of pressure arc, but yeah. the coolest job ever. I wore a headset. I lived in the firing room. GLS go for launch. It was like the greatest job ever. And uh, then I fell into project and program management and did a lot of cool stuff there. But when then one of my best friends got a job at Oracle uh, Support Services, who mm -hmm. built a new technical support center in 1996. And he said, you know, just come, just interview, whatever. It'll be the greatest job ever. And so I interviewed. Was this Florida also? This is in Florida yeah. in Orlando. And uh, Fred Nassarello was a hiring manager, and I showed up, and it's on a Friday, so it's like casual Friday, and he's got a velour jumpsuit. And uh, <laughs> he interviewed me, and he said, you know what? Um, I really like you. I want to make you, make you a team lead. Um, how much money would it take for you to work here? And I thought of, like, the biggest dollar value I could possibly imagine. And after working at the Space Center for eight and a half years, I finally made it to over $40,000 a year. Right, and this is still the mid-80s, right? Yeah, 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 96, so I Oh, said, 96, so we were out of, okay. Yeah, wow, 96, okay. I'm way underpaid. Yes. So I said, <laughs> I don't know, 48,000. He says, when can you start? 
So then I drive the hour back. The next day oh, no. I go to my 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 best friend and boss, my my Ralph Ralph Esposito, my my sponsor uh, and, and inspirer at the Space Center, and I tell him the story. He says, "Brad, this is the greatest news ever." It's like, what do you mean? If you leave for three hundred and sixty-six days, I can hire you at fair market value. I said, "What does that what? mean?" Well, you've been behind the salary curve this entire time because you started as a tech and then you went to salaried because you got your your degree. So, well, what does this mean? He says, "Well, I can hire you back at 63. <laughs> so I'm like, "Wait a second. So I go to I go to work. I get this huge pay bump. Yeah. I work at Oracle for a year, and then I come back to the space center. He says, "Yes, it's genius. You have to do this." And I left a job where I was leading a team of 40 engineers transplanting the latest technology from Houston to Kennedy Space Center. And I was managing a bunch of relationships between both the NASA teams and the contractor teams. So it was a great job to leave. But so I did this. So I go to Oracle and I felt like I was in a Seinfeld episode. George Costanza, I could do no wrong. Right. So I'm like, <laughs> this is crazy. And why do we do it this way? And whoever thought of that? And why do we do it? Because like, I did not care. I was a made man right and i was playing by a set of rules that didn't comply to oracle come to find out this really endeared me to the oracle culture of the early 90s that's hysterical so did you meet larry ellison i ultimately did oh my goodness so um three weeks before i'm ready to leave i've already passed my physicals i've passed all my job interviews i have a job offer in my hand to go back to the space center a brand new VP of, of, of North American support, Al Snyder, comes to Orlando, and he's, he's a great guy, amazing guy, well-spoken, from Digital Deck. And so Digital Deck in high tech is like the George S. Patton School of Leadership, right? Okay. Salty, earthy dudes, you know? Okay. Um, and he says, we're getting rid of Follow the Sun. It's a ridiculous thing. I want to build a 24-7 support center in Colorado Springs. And so I stand up in this all-hands meeting of 600 staff, and I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> we, we, we are supporting the Fortune 100. It's English support speaking. It goes from Orlando to Redwood Springs to Melbourne, Australia to Bracknell, UK, back to us. If we can't do this and do this well flawlessly, we don't deserve the right to support the biggest companies ever. He says, well, shit, Smith, you seem to have a lot of moxie on this. What do you propose we do? Well, I would do this and this and this. He says, great. Could you write up a report? I said, absolutely. <laughs> he says, when can you write it? I said, I don't know, next Tuesday. Done. <laughs> so I write this kind of Jerry Maguire of what we should do to fix Follow the Sun. That's a mission statement. <laughs> and he's like, he sends it out to all the global leaders and headquarters leaders. And he said, I got this guy, Brad Smith. He's on fire. And I need one of him at every center, and he's going to lead a, a fix to follow the sun. And my, my career took off. Exponentially. Exponentially. And that led to the Y2K program. So because of my single point of failure, manned space flight, mission critical, software engineering backgrounds, I identified a number of faults for Y2K and ended up running the global Y2K program to ensure internal readiness of Oracle as well as external readiness of Oracle and ultimately had to report into Larry Ellison and the board of directors on the readiness of us and all their top tier customers. So yes, I had a couple of meetings with Larry Ellison. They were not um, emotionally gratifying, but they were very much career. <laughs> I doubt Larry's listening to this very, podcast, very much, but very much career, I've heard that. <laughs> very much career building. Yeah. Um, and then as luck would have it, right after Y2K, a lot of key leaders left Oracle 
And I followed Al Snyder to a new company called OpenWave, and OpenWave basically has all the patents that allowed smartphones to get onto the internet. Yeah. And uh, my career kind of took off from there. So I went from OpenWave to uh, VeriSign to uh, Inquira to Semantic to Yahoo to Sage and then to my own company in 2015. That's amazing. And all of it, which you started to be really from the CX standpoint or from a customer service standpoint, because you stood up in this yeah. meeting because you had nothing to lose mm -hmm. because you were wildly underpaid. Which, and then Which had, I didn't and, even know or appreciate. And had I an thought out. I had, yeah. Yeah. And we're like, whatever, balls to the wall. I'm just going to say what I think. And So my last days at Oracle, I got assigned a project to roll out uh, their CRM solution against themselves. And the product manager that I was working for is Mark Berenshay, who, you know, yeah. kind of did Salesforce. Um, it was a highly charged political environment and cutthroat left and right. And one of my mentors, Tom Brennan, really, you know, recommended me into that job. 15 years later, I'm having drinks with Tom. And it's like, Tom, why, would, why did you do that to me? Like, why would you push me into that in insane nightmare? He's like, because I knew you had talent. You got to learn how to swim with the sharks. And swimming with the sharks is a big theme. And, and what I came to, to appreciate deeply is what you do as a great senior manager is way different than what you do as a director. Mm -hmm. And what you do as a, as a director is different than a VP in an up-and-coming company, which is radically different than what you do as a vice president in a well-established company. Mm -hmm. And my metamorphosis of making it to vice president of global support for OpenWave and then quickly going to vice president of global support for VeriSign and then through a massive restructure, <laughs> uh, finding myself as a sales director for Inquira and then a senior director service architect at Semantic, and then winning back the VP stripes at Yahoo, and then becoming an executive vice president at Sage, this roller coaster of leadership taught me a lot about power projection, how to build stakeholder maps. Uh, I, I, was, I was benefited with great executive coaching, but the life experiences are priceless. Mm -hmm. And um, it was at Semantic, you know, you have to understand like from, 96 to 2007, I was the customer service guy. In high tech, what that means is I have to keep everyone else's stupid promises. So if the marketing team over promises, if the sales team oversells, if the PS team under delivers, it's up to me to keep the lights on. And at OpenWave, right, we had, we had customers like Sprint that would pay us multiple, multiple million dollars a year then they would, they would ask for a refund of all their maintenance and support payments if we didn't deliver five nines of availability. And so like that was my job to own that promise. So when I got to Semantic, Asling Hassel was the, was the customer officer at Semantic at that time and she built a business architecture group. And I got to sit there and say the marketing team, the sales team, the onboarding team, the service team, and the renewals team and I got to sit with my peers and understand and see the business horizontally for, for the first time in my life. And in, in 2007, that's where I declared my major. I said, I want to be customer experience because what if we made better promises? What if we all worked together horizontally? What if we all understood success, not from our individual MBOs and, and quarterly business reviews point of view, but from the customer's point of view? And if we're winning, there should be evidence we're winning. Well, in the 2007, if I, I was, and I'll, I'm gonna go back to sort of what was happening in your 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 life life at the yeah. same time because you've 
you know, kind of thinking through the, the premise of this is, you know, like these holy shit moments define, they, they, they can define right. you in a negative or a positive. And for you, it was this, this patriotic family, right? The yeah. military yeah. and the astronaut and that these things didn't work out and it pushed you into places. And then you, you know, you, you kind of found the freedom to have your voice because there was nothing to lose because you right. had the safety net. The fearlessness. But... And then it, it, but it pushed you into this whole new career yeah. that was sort of untapped. Yeah. But in 07, so first of all, were you are you still in Florida? Are you still with yeah, your wife so, and your child? Yeah, yeah. So, we go- so Y2K cost me my marriage. Um, I, I did I did become a million mile flyer on United, so that was great. <laughs> um, but but I fell in love with the idea of my first wife, and people that young should not get married. Mm-hmm. But uh, we we created Noah and Abby, two of the most perfect, wonderful human beings on the planet Earth. Um, and I got divorced in two thousand. And what I realized was in those early days, my best calling is a part-time dad. I rocked at it. I could travel the world for 10 days straight and be absolutely present for a full weekend, mm-hmm. be there for holidays, be there for school events, be there for family vacations. But when I wasn't that, I could be the greatest corporate employee in the history of God. Yeah. And so to be able to throw myself headlong into both these things was a big deal. And I spent six years getting to know myself because I never was an adult. I just Right, from- I was this thing pretending to be an adult and, right. and getting these, you know, additional merit badges. So, um, you know, I, I, I fell in love with one of my best friends and it was a possible relationship. And I got reengaged in 2006 and got married in 2007 and had Audrey in 2008 and our twin girls in 2010. And in 2007, I found myself living in Savannah, Georgia. Um, working as a telecommuter with a newborn wife and a, and, and uh, with a newborn and, and a and a new kind wife. Kind of a newborn wife. A newborn wife, absolutely. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, a golden retriever and two cats, and just you know, living the dream uh, in in Savannah, Georgia. This is. I was like, this is. I was trying to think. I just so a friend of mine, Joe Pine, had reached out recently, and he was the author of the Experience Economy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I keep going back. It's that seems like it's been around forever. And yeah, he might have actually written that a little earlier in the 2000s. Yeah. But I, you know, kind of going back and how you you <clears throat> use this to sort of you know, be a pioneer. I don't know who, who actually was the first sort of CXO, you probably yeah. do, but to be a pioneer in this space, I think you certainly qualify as that and yeah, no, in I, this time frame. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. And, and one of the things um, in this time frame, the, the thing that's impossible for me to escape is there's 76,000 functional designators that are needed to launch a space shuttle. Mm-hmm. And these, these sensors are monitoring temperatures, pressures, you know, voltages, at sometimes up to a thousand times a second. Yeah. And as I march through a launch countdown, I'm only looking at a handful of those sensors relevant to, it's T minus 15 minutes, can I go to T minus 14 minutes? But I'm understanding the entire ecosystem and I also have a clear understanding of what success looks like, and more importantly, what failure looks like. Everything I've ever done in customer support and everything I've ever done in customer experience has been haunted by that truth. Hmm. It is complex by its nature. And if it's not, you can't make it simple. So embrace the complexity. Where's the data? Show me the positive behavior. Show me the negative behaviors. Build guardrails to push the negative to the positive, and I demand policy and process and data and training, and I also demand a North Star. I need a brand promise that governs us 
safely put men in space and land them back on the earth, achieving the mission, right? Just give me a brand promise. You know, Yahoo is fun, safe, and simple. Oh. I could get behind that. I could build an entire experience around that. And I could also easily see through measurement in interviews, we did not deliver safe today. We did not deliver simple. We forfeited fun. You know, so this idea of, I have to build this ecosystem. We have to put analytics and metrics around it. I have to organize all the way from marketing and sales to product to service to renewals. I have to do all this, but it's manageable. That confidence, that innate confidence I have is because I grew up in a launch control room that had seven contractors and 13 critical systems working to launch shuttles safely in my yeah. early 20s. And it's funny because CX isn't rocket scientists, but but is it? I, it might be rocket science. Maybe. You know, there might be something to this. Oh, there's, there's so much. So, so thinking about sort of the CX and how you, so you built this, but you also sort of, you had a lot of learnings from your, your you know, your family. You watched your father and his multiple Absolutely. marriages. Sure, you, yeah. you know, you, you thought about the experience of, certainly of your family. You thought about your own, you've got your first wife, now yep. you've got your second one. Did you ever see any um, any synergies really with this idea of thinking? I, I always put it this way. Let me ask, tell you the reason I'm asking the question. So I think about you know you think about customer experience and you think about the, the the ecosystem that you talk about. I'll end up in the super geekiest moments, you know, thinking through the ecosystem of like mm -hmm. my children, my family's lives. Okay, am I thinking right. through what are the most important thing? You know, I don't know. Right. Actually, I have a mission statement for my family besides. <laughs> Please don't get in a car accident. Please don't drink and drive. Yeah, right, Please, you know, right. those kinds of things. Yeah. But you, you, you think about like, okay, am I, am I doing all the right things? I think all of us who try to manage family and career, you, you yeah. have, you, you try to figure that out. Have you ever tried to apply like your own understanding and your form formation of CX, the customer experience, to your own family life? And oh, trying to balance that? No, for sure. I mean, do what, you? Yeah, I'm just curious if that's no, just no, me I mean, and my I mean, own one of the most ridiculous mind. things I did is um, I, I earned, I earned, uh, embarrassingly, and then later proudly, the title of Uncle Dad because I was such a part-time dad <laughs> for oh, no one. For Abby, your first right? two kids. And um, it dawned on me. Um, I grew up with a strong work ethic, ethic mm -hmm. right? I had a paper out at 14. I had chores I had to get done. There was accountability taught to me early in. And so I had chores to do. I had a house in Orlando. You know, I wasn't there all week, you know, so we come and I try to build chores and it never went well. And, you know, the allowance never went well. So I decided I was going to employ an MBO system against my kids. And I'd say, okay, look, um, here's the jobs to do. And if you do these jobs and I have to come back and do it after you, it's only 10 bucks. And if you do the job and I don't have to do anything, then it's, you know, I'll give you 12 bucks. And if you do it better than I could do it myself, I'll give you 20. And so I started scoring and grading my kids. And then, and then later the thing that frustrated me is, you know, we'd go off on a great weekend and go on a vacation, a special memory, and they, you know, they wouldn't eat their food, they wouldn't do this, they wouldn't do that. It was just, you know, it's, they're teenagers and I'm, you know, yeah. uncle dad. So I said, okay, you know what? Um, President's Day weekend is coming up, it's a school holiday. I'm gonna have you Friday through Monday. Our budget is $250. You decide what we're doing and where we're gonna go. And so they decided we're gonna drive down to Fort Lauderdale, go into you know, Lion Country Safari. They had to pay for every meal out of their own pocket. They had to pay for the hotel out of their own pocket. And like suddenly 
uh, well, let's no. We want the we want the pizza to go. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat that for breakfast. And I want you know, it, it just trying to inspire accountability and consequence became a central theme. And then later, when I got to be a dad a second time, I wasn't 22, mm-hmm. working odd work week, Uncle Dad. Right. I was fully present, fully on, had the capabilities to to do all the right things in all the right ways. And I can't tell you how I sucked the marrow out of those moments, you know, and like Madeline, the littlest of my twins, just I'll never forget the moment when she just didn't fit. And when you hold her, Mm -hmm. you know, and her bum's here and her head's here, but she's a little bit too long, her arm a little bit uncomfortable. Like that moment, I remember, and I still get melancholy thinking about it. And like to live your life that kind of presence with malice of forethought mm-hmm. is such a miracle. And you look at my ridiculous career and all my beautiful blessings. To live your life in a fearless way is such a gift. And when you start to get scared, just remember, you know, my mom's favorite saying, you know, let go and let God just relax. And this is this is the fun part. Yeah. You know, that do, 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 you hear that's the part that happens before the really cool part happens. Yeah. And so forever, you know, I had a lot of people saying you should start your own business. And, you know, our, our friend Fred mm-hmm. recommended that repeatedly while I was at Sage. And so Sage became a global company and it was clearly the leadership team needed to be in London. And I had already moved my family. Audrey had had five zip codes in seven years and I just wasn't ready to move again from Southern California. Um, we left as best of friends and in the summer of 2015, I took a sabbatical and then suddenly through my professional network, uh, colleagues reached out to me and says, Hey, that thing you did at, at, at Samantha, we'd like you to come and do that here. Or that thing you did at Sage, I'd like you to come. And I started my own company in, uh, September, 2015. And now I help big companies figure out their customer transformations. And I got stopped at a Forrester conference in spring of 2016. And um, a guy named Thomas, who I just met there, and I never have seen him since, a, a, a great um, South African guy. We got, you know, we're having drinks at the end of the first day. And he says, hey, so tell me about yourself. Why are you here? What's your purpose? Why do you exist? Why are you here right now at this meeting? Why? And this kid's like, you know, 28 years old. And I said, you know, that's, that's, that's a hell of a question. And I think... <sighs> What if the path to greatest long-term profitability and stability for any corporation or organization is the path of customer experience? And what if that path of customer experience generates the greatest benefits for the shareholders, for all the employees, and the customers? And what if that was recognized as the highest goal of any corporation outside of short-term profits, what if we could teach the algorithms and the machines that determine stock price that this longer term view is the better metric? And what if empowering your employees and, and, and supporting them is the path to greatest customer satisfaction? What if I could make that help make that pivot? That would be a planet I want to leave my daughters to. Mm-hmm. What if the golden rule is actually the most profitable and selfish thing you could do? And what if I could demonstrate the data to prove it? I think that's maybe why I'm here. And those words still haunt me to this moment. It's one of those moments in my life, and I've had probably, you know, half a dozen, 
where you feel words coming into your head from another place. And that's a pretty cool place to be right now. I love that. Well, I love that. So, okay. I feel like we need to end on that because I don't know if it gets more powerful than that. But on the golden, I mean, on the golden rule and thinking that that would be the most selfish and that if the world ran corporations, you know, which is a dichotomy ran on the golden rule, which is really what we're trying to do with CX is just make, make prove that by doing unto others as we would have done unto ourselves, that that we will actually be more for your employees, for for each other across the board, right? That you can take that forward. So your life lessons. One of my best friends, I have to give him credit for this, Jim Pendergast. uh, He coined the phrase after becoming the chief customer officer of ARP. Um, He said, you know what? I think CX needs to be a company's OS, their operating Operating system. system. If they're not running their company by design, by decision, by cost center against CX, they're doing it wrong, and it's just a matter of time before they disintegrate into the ether of nobody cares. I love that. So I think that's great. I think this is also a really nice way to end in terms of for all people who've ever thought about wanting to be um, in the, the customer experience or the game is that you take all your life experiences and now you're able to put them to use in terms of just doing the right thing. It isn't rocket science, although it has helped you having some rocket science experience. It helps to build a business case to legislate for change, make no mistake, but still. An actual rocket science, that's true. So thank you very much for sharing your backstory with us. Absolutely, thank you. This has been fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.